Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Dave Shearer on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Policing Stalin's Socialism, Repression and Social Order in the Soviet Union, 1924 to 1953. When I was an undergraduate many, many years ago and was studying the Great Terror, as it was then called, we read, if I recall correctly, Roy Medvedev's Let History Judge. We read a memoir or two, probably Into the Whirlwind by Evgeny Ginsberg. We may have read Robert Conquest's Great Terror. I don't have a clear recollection of these things, but this much I do know, having read Dave Shearer's book, we have learned a lot since then because the picture of the Great Purges as Dave calls it, that emerges from policing Stalin socialism is very different from the one that is presented in those, what should now be seen as early attempts to understand the mass killings in the Soviet Union in the period 1937 to 38. Dave has scoured all the archives and he has discovered some quite remarkable things about the origins of the Great Purges, things that will turn much of the received historiography on its head. I really enjoyed talking to Dave today and I Hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Dave. Hello, Marshall. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing fine, uh, surviving the last week of the semester. Yeah, well, you, you and me both. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Dave Shearer today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, Policing Stalin Socialism, Repression and Social Order in the Soviet Union, 1924 to 1953. This was a really eye-opening book for uh, me to read. I've read a lot of books about uh, Stalinist repression in the 1920s and 1930s. And this one, unlike many of them I have read, uh, actually has something quite new to say. Uh, we'll talk about that in the course of the interview. And I think that all of the listeners will find it very enlightening. But Dave, why don't we begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I'm a, a Soviet historian. Uh, I'm uh, at the University of Delaware in the history department. Um, I uh, originally went to Ohio State for my undergraduate work. I did a, uh, a master's degree there, and then uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and uh, studied under Moshe Levin, uh, took a PhD in 1988, and then um, had a, some postdocs, uh, and then uh, ended up here at the University of Delaware, which is where I've been since. So um, we have a lot of it's Buckeyes. actually been kind of a gem of a place to be. Yeah, I'm sure we have. A, I was going to say we have a lot of Buckeyes who've been on this show. It's, it's quite remarkable. Um, and also uh, <laughs> Moshe, you know, I don't know if most people would know who Moshe Lewin is, but he was very important in, in your field. Maybe you could say a few words about him because he's just passed, hasn't he? Yes, he died last August uh, in Paris, um, which I guess uh, was his real home. He... Uh, uh, was a preeminent uh, social historian, uh, had uh, grown up in Vilnius uh, in between the war. Uh, and then um, uh, when uh, the war started, he evacuated into the Soviet Union, ended up uh, as an officer in the Soviet Army. Then he smuggled himself uh, into out of the Soviet Union through Poland, Czechoslovakia, ended up in France, Israel, Eventually did his PhD at the, at the Sorbonne under uh, Ferdinand Braudel uh, and then uh, began an academic career in Britain and eventually moved in the mid-1970s to the United States. Uh, and as I say, he uh, 
was one of the pioneers of, uh, of uh, social history, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, of the Soviet period. And uh, he had a long, distinguished career, um, and he finally retired, went back to Paris uh, in the last couple of years of his life, and that's where he died. So I was fortunate to be one of his students. Yeah, he was. Uh, he has a reputation of being kind of tough. At least, uh, is that true? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. Um, tough or uh, very uh, discriminate, uh, discriminating, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, there were only a few people who uh, who actually finished under him. Uh, so he, I would say, tough, but also a very complicated man, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, uh, I think uh, actually in the journal Critica, Al Reber, who was a long-time colleague of his, is uh, going to have a, uh, a memoriam piece that oh, really? I think uh, describes him very well. It should oh, be coming out, I think, in this next issue. That's terrific. I look forward to reading that. So let's move on to a discussion of the book. How did you come to write Policing Stalin's Socialism? Well, I finished my first book in the mid-1990s, uh, which was actually on, it was on the state, uh, but it was on political economy. And uh, the one thing I kept noticing as I was working through that material and any other material was how uh, how chaotic things were in this supposedly totalitarian state. Uh, and what got me originally interested in uh, issues of order, things like that, were a lot of the economic crimes I came across when I was working on the first book. And... Uh, uh, and so I originally was going to write a book about sort of uh, uh, an illegal economy or black market economy. And then it just kind of kept spreading into other directions so that uh, I eventually ended up uh, coming around to the whole issue of, uh, of social order, uh, policing, political policing and repression. Uh, so it kind of uh, opened from a narrow door into, uh, into a much wider field. I guess it took a while, but it was worth it was worth doing. When you started the project, uh, it sounded like it, it evolved sort of organically. So I, I suspect I know the answer to this question. Yeah. When you started the project, did you think you were going to end up with a new interpretation of the Great Purges? Uh, no, I I actually was going to stay away from the Great Purges, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as, as the Great Terror. I just just thought, you know, I I don't want to get into those arguments, but. Um, Eventually, uh, yes, I found myself uh, that, that it was just uh, inevitable. I, I couldn't get around it and, in fact, eventually didn't want to get around it because I thought the more I looked into the materials I was looking into that there needed to be some reinterpretation of it. Mm -hmm. But originally it was going to be about uh, social policing and not about political policing. The great surprise to me was that, in fact, uh, the two were very closely related. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, what is the difference, since you mentioned these two terms and they're important for the book, what is the difference between political policing and social policing? We don't, I don't think we have political policing in the United States, do we? I don't, <laughs> don't answer that question. There could be somebody <laughs> listening. I, no, what, what, what is the difference in the Soviet context? Well, a lot of that is uh, historiographically constructed which is to say that um, most people who write about the political police in the Soviet Union, and there was a political police, the, um, the, the GPU, the OGPU, and then what's sort of incorrectly called the NKVD, uh, the NKVD also included uh, 
uh, garbage disposal, but uh, it was the, the political police, the, the GUGB, that actually controlled the, the, the Commissariat of the Interior. That was the political police. And in the historiography, traditionally, um, everyone has written about, if they write about political police or political repression, they're writing about um, repression against what was perceived as political opposition. So, you know, running around looking for Trotskyists, underground political organizations, Polish spies, those kinds of things. Um, social policing or, or social order was generally considered to be the domain of the civil police. And that meant fighting uh, a criminal or criminality, um, uh, itinerants, beggars, all the kinds of things that we think of as, and what in fact in the 1920s in the Soviet Union were called social anomalies. And traditionally, uh, historians who write about, uh, about repression in the Soviet Union focus on what they think of as the political police and what they think of as political repression. And they don't, they, they don't think that the subject covers um, supposedly uh, uh, issues of social order, criminality, uh, mass migration, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, and what I found was that, in fact, uh, the two were very closely linked. Mm -hmm. And how so? Uh, and I think what you could talk about here is that the way in which the, the Bolsheviks, um, and this is a bit of a terminological muddle, I, don't, I think I'll call them Bolsheviks and not communists or socialists, just Bolsheviks, the way yeah. they thought about crime. What, what was, what, how did they see uh, crimes and, and, and misdemeanors? Well, that changed. Uh, it, and this also to me was an interesting uh, revelation, a, a simple one, but also a revelation. Uh, attitudes towards criminality changed from the 1920s to the 1930s. In the 1920s, um, criminality, I mean, they always considered criminality uh, to be an aspect of, of a bourgeois hangover or an aspect of of capitalist societies where crime is the product of, of uh, uh, different uh, socioeconomic status, property, those kinds of things. And that within socialism, crime would eventually disappear as, um, uh, as equality of opportunity and wealth uh, uh, and prosperity uh, took over. So in the 1920s, uh, this was during the period of NEP, the, the, the mixed a capitalist socialist system, crime was con still considered to be um, a social anomaly or it was considered to be a sort of part of the, the capitalist compromise left over from pre-revolutionary, uh, the pre-revolutionary era. And it was the domain of the civil police. Uh, it was, it was considered uh, in many ways the way, and it was dealt with in many ways, crime was dealt with by any professional police force in other areas of Europe, um, according to, uh, or, or considered to be what they called social anomalies. Criminals were arrested according to statutes, criminal statutes, and so, and so on. But that changed very suddenly, uh, and it changed in 1933 with the declaration that um, capitalism had been defeated with uh, the so-called um, success of, of dekulakization, the defeat of supposedly defeat of, of organized capitalist uh, resistance uh, from uh, from peasants, uh, so-called kulaks, from the net men, uh, and the triumph of socialism. 
that created a problem because now criminality, any kind of social disorder, um, could not be explained as a social anomaly of capitalism. It had to be, it, it, ideologically, it could be nothing other than anti-Soviet conscious uh, behavior. And therefore, it became politicized. And therefore, it became the concern of the political police. And so the, the attitude toward criminality, toward anything from beggars to, uh, to, to criminals to um, people with illegal documents was that they were suspected of being anti-Soviet uh, because, um, uh, because now that there was full socialism there, it couldn't be explained any other way. So now these how, were now enemies of the state. And, and how did that change how they were dealt with or did it change how they were dealt with? And the reason I ask that question is I can imagine being a civil police officer and then being told that, you know, this uh, kind of ragamuffin who uh, hangs out on Red Square and is known to have been a pickpocket, well, he's now an enemy of the state. Yeah. What, what are you well, supposed to do with that information? Yeah. Um, well, now, as I said, as, um, beginning in 1933, and very specifically in January of 1933, Stalin, uh, the, the regime's officials and Stalin chief among them, defined social disorder as the new and most dangerous form of class war. Uh, now that organized class opposition had been defeated. And in fact, he, de he described uh, theft of, of property, which is now socialist property and criminality, as more dangerous than any other threat to the stability of the state and the task of building socialism. That redefinition of criminality and social disorder as class war made social order a matter of state security and therefore a prime concern of the political police. As a result of that, one of the central tasks of the political, uh, as well as the civil police then for much of the 1930s, focused on uh, uh, on uh, administrative repression of these so-called anti-Soviet elements rather than repression of, of political opposition. So the political police under Stalin became increasingly drawn into the realm of social governance, while the civil police on the other side became militarized as an extension of the state's political policing organs. And what that meant specifically was that uh, Contrary to the way the civil and political police had been had been separated in the nineteenth in the nineteen twenties, beginning in late nineteen thirty, the political police began to take over the operational and then the administrative uh, functioning of the civil police, the militia. This was first done through um, secret protocols that were not made public until nineteen thirty two, but in nineteen thirty two and nineteen thirty three. The political police took over uh, the official, or I should say the civil police, became uh, officially, formally subordinated to the political police. And the political police then attempted to restructure the civil police so that the administrative structures and the operational structures would fit into uh, the operational and administrative system of the political police and work as an extension of the political police. Uh, and as far as... Uh, when this happened, there were uh, civil, civil, not only civilian police officials, but high officials who said that this, um, that, this, uh, that this should not happen, that the civil police should not be militarized, that this could, should not happen under socialism. And they resisted it. They resisted it uh, very strongly. 
Um, but Stalin, of course, uh, was very interested in having this uh, happen. And so uh, under um, Genrik Jagoda, uh, over the course of a number of years, uh, the political police took over the civilian police and attempted to remake them uh, along the, line, the disciplinary lines and the operational lines of the political police. It never really worked. <laughs> um, but, uh, but structurally and formally, uh, this is what happened. Um, in terms of ordinary policemen, what did they think? Well, uh, the, a lot of the, the police that were hired in the 1930s were brought in from the political police, or they were demobilized uh, army soldiers. And so they uh, uh, were quite happy to, uh, uh, I think they, they, they bought, largely bought into this into this idea. If there was resistance to it uh, at the beginning, and there was, even at the local levels, by the mid-1930s, I think Yagoda had created a policing system that, uh, that, uh, that, that accepted its function and its role within the state. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are interesting examples in the early 1930s, especially during decolonization, where the civilian police um, re uh, at local levels uh, refused to to engage in the kind of uh, uh, mass repression that the political police wanted them to engage in. Now, let me ask two questions about the uh, politicization of the civil police. Did it change uh, the way in which cases were adjudicated? That's question A. And then B, did it change the penalties that were meted out? And when you're answering question A, that is about adjudication, you, you mentioned this distinction between administrative procedures yeah. and I guess what we call civil procedures. What is that distinction exactly? Well, not so much civil as, as uh, judicial and judicial, extrajudicial yeah. or administrative and, and judicial. Uh, yeah. Um, let me answer B first because it's okay. the easier answer first. And that is that uh, throughout the 1930s, uh, punishments for what we would consider to be um, uh, uh, statutory crimes, in fact, increased in, in, in severity, both judicial and administratively. Um, what began to occur, especially in, in, even in 1932, but especially in 1933 with the beginning of the passport system, uh, the internal documentation system, is that uh, police administrative sentencing boards were set up that included both civilian and political police. Uh, and these had the power to um, uh, to arrest citizens and to uh, sentence them for up to five years uh, in either camps or colonies or uh, or some kind of exile, or simply to uh, deport them and uh, forbid them to live in certain areas of the country. And they could do this um, under administrative laws. They could do it without without a trial, without the person being brought up on a criminal statute. Uh, they could do it under these kind of broad categories of, of, um, uh, of laws that, that uh, refer to anti, what were called antisocial elements. Mm -hmm. So these um, political administrative boards, which became known as Troika, um, uh, began to, uh, to, um, uh, to work in the early 1930s. And uh, as the civil courts, since the civil courts, the judicial courts were so packed with, uh, with cases, more and more uh, cases were simply sent to these administrative boards. So that by 1933, 1934, 
um, these uh, civilian boards had uh, were were taking in and, and looking at at cases that that were far beyond their original jurisdiction of say residence violations and things like this. Uh, and in fact, they became a major way that uh, that citizens were repressed. Um, that is to say, that were deprived of either property or freedom in some way, or or or, or restriction of movement. Uh, and then, of course, in 1934, uh, supposedly with the, the creation of the Commissary of Internal Affairs, uh, these troiki supposedly were supposed to be um, were supposed to be stopped, uh, and the political troiki were. But one of the things that I found that was startling to me is that within several months, the, the administrative police boards were working again, and they worked all through the 1930s. Uh, and they essentially sentenced um, political as well as, uh, or, or they sentenced people f uh, for up to five years for any number of, of crimes or even being in the wrong place at the, right, at the wrong time without documents. Mm -hmm. So this is what I mean by administrative uh, policing. Uh, and many of these people were, were caught up in these boards by mass police operations, that is, um, um, Police operations in in marketplaces, on streets, uh, in cities, uh, targeting certain kinds of groups, uh, and this was in the middle 1930s when supposedly all this mass depression wasn't happening, but it was happening within the civil police boards. So let, let me ask you to give an example, just so we can get the flavor of this. Say it's you know 1934 or something, and um, uh, say I go into a bakery and I steal some bread. And I get okay. caught. What's going to happen to me? Uh, one of a couple things, and it would depend. <laughs> Probably on none the, of them are going to be very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depended on uh, the particular circumstances, um, but you could either be arrested and charged. You could be charged in that case with a statutory crime, theft, and you could be sentenced through um, a regular judicial court, or you could be uh, taken for an administrative police board uh, and uh, sentenced as uh, or, or uh, tried and sentenced as a socially uh, as a uh, as a socially dangerous element and that wouldn't require any any uh, uh, court procedure or or evidence other than you know someone uh, saying that yeah he stole he stole the bread or you would say I stole the bread uh, and you could be sentenced uh, administratively that way it was a, a much more efficient way for uh, for authorities to deal with criminality than through the uh, the choked kind of uh, judicial system. And the political police had actually encouraged both civil and political police to use these boards because he thought, Yagoda thought that the, the, the judicial system was too weak and too liberal. Mm -hmm. Now, often what would happen, people would get, it wasn't so much that they would get caught stealing a piece of bread, it's that Often, how people ended up in front of these administrative boards is that when the the police and authorities would issue passports in the city, they would mount these sweep operations uh, beforehand, uh, or uh, or even as they uh, as they uh, handed out the, uh, the as they distributed the passports, um, they would use this as a kind of a net to catch. Uh, say ex kulaks or people without proper documentation who are unemployed who had no place of residence 
and then they could be uh, they could be sentenced through these uh, through these boards, and they also used it as a quick and efficient way uh, to uh, to gather up all sorts of of petty criminals without actually having to go through the process of of sorting their crimes out, finding the statutes, charging them with the statute, and sending them through the through the judicial courts. And this was done a lot with prostitutes. So what's interesting is that if you look at um, uh, statistics on prostitution, like uh, you know court statistics on prostitution in the mid 1930s, they would say, well, we've eliminated the problem of prostitution. But if you look at the uh, the police records of all of the people that were say were swept up in the course of a month in a city like St. Petersburg or Tier or something like that. And you go through the short profiles of uh, of the people who were sentenced, and I, I found one of these examples. You find all of the sorts of the, these examples of women, for example, who were uh, you know between the ages of twenty and thirty five, who had no residence, no place of employment, uh, and they were sentenced as socially dangerous elements. Now, there's you know there's nothing in the record that says that those women were prostitutes, but you can imagine that a number of them were being forced to make their living that way. Mm -hmm. And so they could simply be swept up along with people who had stolen bread or other petty crimes, and they didn't have to charge them with a, a crime. They could simply sentence them as socially dangerous types because they didn't have proper documentation or whatever, and then deport them, send them to camps or colonies or whatever. Now, you mentioned the passport system. Right. Uh, we don't have a passport system in the United States, I think. Although they ask a lot for our driver's license, I, I yeah. am, I, I pity the poor person who doesn't have one. So, what, what is the, uh, what is the passport system exactly? <clears throat> well, you know, John Ashcroft wanted to implement. <laughs> you, you may remember that, and when he when he made that announcement, I thought, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> Uh, the internal passport system was actually a system that many um, European countries used uh, at the time and still do of uh, essentially it's a document that um, uh, has your name and uh, your place of residence and other kinds of uh, information on it and uh, that that identifies you and that internal passport it's an, like an internal passport um, uh, uh, is issued to you on the basis of other uh, proof, uh, 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 other proof that you have when you when you apply for one, proof that you have of where you live or where you work, uh, and that's what allows you to move around. Uh, it's what allows you to uh, to have to uh, gain work. Uh, it's also the thing that police can ask for at any time, and of course. Uh, this was true in the Soviet Union, and actually it's still true in, uh, for, for example, in France. A policeman can walk up to you, and this is still true in Russia, and it was true in the 1930s. A policeman can walk up to you and ask you for your documents, which is illegal in the United States, even though, unless there's, a, unless there's a suspicion. Uh, and so you always had to have your internal passport, and if you didn't, you could be subject at least to a fine, uh, or possibly uh, to uh, uh, to detention or uh, other kinds of things. Uh, and for a time, th there was a passport system under the czarist uh, regime as well. And for a time in the 1920s, the Soviets did not issue 
uh, a single passport system because they associated it with uh, czarist repression. But beginning in the early 1930s, uh, because uh, for a number of reasons, they came to the conclusion that they needed one. Mm -hmm. And so they they implemented uh, a, a passport system, an internal passport system in the early 1930s that covered mostly urban areas uh, and some rural areas, but not all rural areas. And so therefore, uh, many, many millions of peasants um, could not travel without uh, they, if they if they were going to travel, they had to have permission of their collective farm chairman or the local Soviet uh, because they did not have internal passports. Mm -hmm. So internal passports was a way of monitoring uh, the urban populations uh, and the movement of populations within the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So how, how did the police use the uh, internal passport system to their um, benefit and that of the regime? Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, there, as I say, these passports would would have certain information in them, written into them. And actually, uh, I came across uh, the interesting uh, debates within in the early 1930s uh, among police officials about what information they should or should not uh, require in those passports. And there are some interesting uh, examples. But um, essentially, what came to be is that your nationality was listed. Uh, and your your social status was listed. And that was key because you could be identified as a worker. Uh, you could be identified as uh, a kolhoznik, or uh, you could be identified as an artisan or by some occupation or by social background. And uh, with uh, uh, within the, the passport system, the police, in their catalog, uh, supposedly, the way the system was supposed to work is that when you uh, applied for your passport, they took all this information, they give you the passport with this with this information in it, and then the police in their catalog kept information about your about any any um, uh, any crimes that you committed, convictions, uh, where you could or could not live, uh, various kinds of restrictions, uh, various kinds of suspicions, and these could supposedly be cross-checked with other uh, police as so it turned into a a system not only of population migration control but also of mass social surveillance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what uh, and then it was on the basis of that that Yagoda believed that they could really begin to tackle the problem of social order rather than going around and arresting people for crimes that they had committed, what police supposedly could do was uh monitor the population through these passports and uh, by control and the passports were 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 uh, associated with your place of residence so wherever you resided you had to register your passport and that way police could I supposedly identify how many of certain of what kind of social categories were living in their towns or in their areas and they could keep an eye on these people if they were under some kind of suspicious category mm -hmm. or on the other hand, when they would say make a sweep of train stations or trains or markets or squares and surround them and then uh, sort of start collecting all the documents from the people, they could catch the supposed criminals who don't have the documents, who shouldn't be there, who don't have passports uh, or have false passports. They can catch them before they actually commit crimes. Mm -hmm. 
So this was supposed to be a scientific way of preventive policing uh, and, and social surveillance within the country. Let, let me ask a, what may seem to be a trivial question, but I, I think it's important. How did they keep all this information without computers? I just, <laughs> how did um, they do it? I have a, I, I, have, I have a long chapter in, in the book uh, that uh, some people may find boring, but I find fascinating, and it, re and it really details uh, exactly what information they kept and how they kept it. Well, they kept, um, well, they kept all sorts of different kinds of catalogs. The passport catalog was only one, uh, and, 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 that, and, and that was kept by both the civilian police and the political police had access to it. But the political police, as well as the civilian police, had other catalog systems. The passport system was supposed to be sort of the central key system that tied all of the other catalog systems together through cross-referencing. So what they had uh, was at, uh, in, in each city, uh, and, then, uh, and then there would be, re there, there would be passport catalogs and residence catalogs for each city or each town or each, uh, each region or county. And then uh, in major cities in the, in the provincial areas, there would be passport catalogs that would repl replicate or that would concentrate all the information from the local catalogs. And then there would be catalogs at the republic level that would replicate the information from the regional level and then, and then again at the central level. What they did was they used cards, essentially, you know, something like a three by five or four by five, four by six card. And they had they would register the person's name and all the information that would be in the passport, and then uh, there would either be no, there would be notations that they would either write on the back or supposedly uh, what they were supposed to do was have certain kind of holes that they could punch or corners that they could uh, tear off that would indicate a certain kind of social status or crime. So that then you could uh, you could uh, uh, lift up the cards and you could take like a long, uh, like thin rod and stick it through all the holes and you'd come up with all of the uh, all of the, uh, uh, the 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 cards in your card catalog that uh, of people who had been convicted for say the second time for theft mm -hmm. of socialist property. Uh, and so they would they would keep these card catalogs. So they my view is that they would supposedly looked like those old computer punch cards, you yeah. know, back in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, maybe not quite as uh, neatly punched with holes, uh, but essentially they would have these kind of cards. And then what happens is that if a person moves, a person is supposed to deregister themselves, that is, at the police station. And then when they go, they, they go to a new residence, they have to re-register themselves. And the place of new registration sends back a little chit supposedly to the place of previous registration and it's marked in that cat in that catalog uh -huh. so that theoretically anywhere a person with a passport moves they can be traced so if you if you want to find so and so you just follow the thread you go to the card catalog and you see where the person moved you contact that police they say yeah the person's here or the person moved on and they moved to this place mm -hmm. but of course it never worked that well People dropped in and out of the passport system all the time, uh, but that supposedly what the cards actually looked like. And they, as I say, they kept them in cat literal catalogs that would look like uh, the old uh, 
library catalogs that we used to use. And the cards look probably a lot like those also. So these things don't survive? We don't, we don't have any examples of them? There's not a Cartacheca that's uh, someplace in, uh, you can look at? No, not that I know of. Um, I've tried to find some, and I'm, I'm trying to remember, actually, if I, if I, I think I have seen uh, 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 photographs of, of a few of them, but I couldn't, I couldn't reproduce the photographs. Uh -huh. um, I have actually seen uh, photographs of, of some of the card catalogs, uh -huh. uh, and, and the way I saw those is uh, because uh, in 1945, in, uh, in June of 1945, that is to say within a couple of weeks, after the surrender of the Germans, uh, the, the Soviet regime considered it important enough that they sent a, a delegation of police, civil police and political police to Berlin to see how the Germans had set up their card catalog, residence, uh, regis citizen registration and card catalog systems. Uh -huh. And they took numerous photographs and sent them back and then began to copy those uh, uh, using those uh, those kind of card catalogs. So I have seen photographs mm -hmm. of those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's kind of amazing if you think about it. Let's um, yeah. move on to uh, discuss the uh, origins and prosecution of the, the, the purges themselves. And when I say the purges, I mean what is sometimes called the Great Terror. This is 1937, 1938. Um, right. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what historians have said about the origins of the Ooh. purges, why they... Uh, we're started in 37 and then yeah. seen through to 38. Well, uh, first of all, there's not, there's not much evidence. Uh, there's not much of a, of a, of a paper trail about, uh, uh, about what were called the mass operations. I, and I should, I should preface this by saying that uh, originally when people talked about the great terror, which, which I think is a misnomer, but when people talk about that, they traditionally talked about that, they thought it encompassed um, what now seems to be only the tip of the iceberg, which was um, the purges within the party and the state apparatus and the military and you know, those kinds of state institutions. Uh, but the, the, the great terror, or what I call the great purges, and I'll, I'll, I'll call them the great purges from now on, actually encompassed a number of different kinds of operations. So there were the, the purges within the state institutions, uh, eventually within the police itself. But then there were the, the, the so-called mass operations, which um, people only began to become aware of, I'd say, in the mid-1990s. That is to say, uh, operations that were by far the largest that were directed against just large segments of the population. Uh, and we can sort of talk about what that was and why it may have come about, but but before I talk about what people think about the origins, you have to realize what people used to think that the, that the Great Purges were and what we now know about them, that there were different operations um, that were social, ethnic, and also um, uh, institutional that went together in 1937-38 to make up what we call, what I call the Great Purges. Uh, as I said at, at the beginning, uh, there's very little uh, actual evidence of why these came about. Now, I should say actual evidence of why the, the, the mass operations came out, because these all were conducted under, under, under specific and separate orders. Um, but uh, there have been all sorts of theories about, uh, um, well, first of all, everyone, I think pretty much everyone agrees that 
that the origins were fairly sudden. Uh, if you look at, at the, the, the mass repression of, say, dekulakization uh, of, of the, the, the mass repression of, peasant, of peasants in the early 1930s, there was a very public uh, and uh, a campaign building up to the repressions in an attempt to, uh, uh, to sort of um, uh, bring the public into participation in the regime's uh, effort to uh, repress resistant peasants. To, to land nationalization. In 1937, uh, there was almost no warning. There was certainly no real public uh, um, uh, uh, propaganda campaign uh, that, uh, as a preface to the mass operations. They seem to have begun rather suddenly in the, uh, in the summer of 1937. And so a lot of the discussion about the origins of the mass social repressions is fairly speculative, uh, and it's focused on uh, everything from pure irrationality uh, uh, and paranoia to considerations of uh, uh, the fear by the Stalinist regime that, in fact, they might be overthrown uh, by um, by a, a mass public uh, uh, a movement, especially since. Uh, by 1937, they had a new constitution, and they were going to uh, have elections to a new uh, a Supreme Soviet, a new uh, sort of federal Congress. Uh, and some historians argue that that there uh, that the Stalinists were so afraid that uh, m many people would uh, vote against <laughs> the regime uh, that they began these mass social operations in order to get rid of people that they that they felt were going to oppose the regime. Uh, and then others have argued that, and there are other, uh, some other uh, perhaps uh, internal issues as well, um, but I'd say the, uh, uh, the, the electoral campaigns are, are crucial there. Uh, others have argued that the international context was very important. Um, and here I'm thinking in particular of Alia Kievniuk, who, uh, the Russian historian, who uh, at least found some indirect evidence that Stalin's reading of the Spanish Civil War um, and the fall of Madrid made him frightened of uh, what might happen if the Soviet Union were invaded, which seemed to be a realistic possibility by 1937, uh, of what might happen uh, if, uh, uh, if disgruntled uh, groups within the country were to rise up in rebellion uh, should there be an invasion. Uh, and so I'd say those are sort of the two main, uh, the two main arguments about the origins of the mass operations, whether they were motivated by internal considerations or external considerations. Um, and as I say, the argument probably will go on and on and on. My feeling is that it's obviously a combination of both. Um, but uh, the crucial question, to my mind, the historical question, uh, that a lot of the internal explanations, and I, I should say an, uh, one more internal explanation is this, this argument of social engineering, that uh, Stalin sort of finally decided that it was time to, uh, to settle all of these questions about, you know, kulaks running around and criminal elements. And so he, just, he decided to, uh, to do that in one big sort of social engineering purge. Uh, but the problem to me, the historical problem, is to understand why Stalin decided to handle 
these various problems the way he did and when he did. Why in the summer, in the summer of 1937, he suddenly decided uh, to, uh, to deal with criminal elements, to deal with uh, escaped kulaks and peasants and other supposedly anti-Soviet elements in a, in a sudden, intensive and murderous way. When in fact, up until then, the police had been dealing with these groups in different ways. Uh, and then in, suddenly in 1937, um, Stalin changed that. And it seems to me that that's the key historical question. And uh, as far as I can tell, the only, so far, the only real plausible, and it's indirect, but the only real plausible argument seems to me uh, to have to do with the international context and with the context of a war scare and the fear of, uh, of uh, you know, the so-called fifth column uprisings. And I think there's some good indications uh, to that effect. Um, uh, Stalin concocted this idea and the political police uh, repeated it. Uh, local party officials repeated it that what they feared was going to happen was that several dangers were going to come together. Uh, that with that, that they, I mean, there had been the danger of supposedly Trotskyist and anti Soviet uh, political uh, groups in opposition, and then there had all and, and their connection with foreign spies and all of that, and then on the uh, on the other hand there was a separate issue, this issue of anti-Soviet elements and social order that the police had been dealing with in a different way throughout the 1937 throughout the 1930s. By the summer of 1937. Uh, it's clear Yezhov began talking this way, other people began talking this way, and Stalin, in some of his comments, began, he began to get the idea that what Stalin saw might happen was that those dangers would come together, that the political oppositionists would begin to agitate among the socially disaffected groups to organize mass resistance once an invasion started. And so that, to me, is what kind of holds all of the elements of the purges together that holds the, the, the political purges, the institutional purges, and the mass social purges together. Mm -hmm. It's why they all happen within the same period of time, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. so that's my take on it anyway. <laughs> well, it's mine too, now that you said it. No, the, um, <laughs> Good, uh, glad you're on board. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so uh, granting that the, uh, the thing we call, the, the, our, we are calling the great purges, uh, are really three or four different things. Mm -hmm. um, how were the uh, how 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 was the arrest and then uh, dispatch? Let's put it that way of the uh, people involved. How was it handled in the mass operations? Yes. Um, well, again, uh, this is where a lot of the the card cataloging came into play. Um, when they when uh, the the Politburo sent out uh, the order that they that the political police should prepare for uh, mass social. Uh, purging, um, they required the local, the, the local, uh, both party and police organs within a very short period of time. I mean, they required this within a week or so to send numbers, that is, uh, uh, numbers of, uh, uh, of socially dangerous elements to Moscow under certain categories. Uh, and they had to do this within a week. And the only, uh, the, and so obviously what they did was they went to their catalogs uh, and they simply, they started counting. Uh, 
uh, in their in their arrest catalogs, their their passport catalogs, their suspicious persons catalogs, their surveillance catalogs, their informant catalogs, uh, and they put these numbers together and they sent them to Moscow. And then this process of negotiation began. Of uh, certain leaders within localities wanted to expand the number of categories to get rid of uh, certain groups. Uh, and the and and the, the central the either Stalin or Yezhov and usually it was Stalin through Yezhov would say yes or no, but it was largely through going to their catalog system that they uh, that they accumulated the initial numbers uh, of people who would be arrested and either those who would be shot as especially dangerous or those who would be sent to camps or colonies or prisons. Uh, as less dangerous, but nonetheless uh, dangerous. So the answer to your question is, that's where the catalog system came in. And um, that's uh, the basis on which, in the initial phases of the mass operations, that's the basis, I think, on which they made arrests. Mm -hmm. Are are these the, uh, is this the origin of the quotas we hear so much about? Yes, Uh, yes. Um, And there are, you know, there, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's that evidence, and then there's also anecdotal evidence that uh, of in, in investigations after the fact, after the purges ended, where uh, and and, this, and I should say the civil police were very deeply involved in this. It wasn't just the political police, but the civil police also, especially in urban areas where the mass operations tend to be uh, not of you know escaped kulaks or people like that in the countryside, but in the cities it was of uh, socially marginal elements, and so. Uh, police were told, um, you know, they went through the catalogs, but they also simply uh, were told, uh, you know, you know who the uh, the hooligans are in your in your areas. If you've got people that you've written down in a notebook or in in a local police office who've been run in for drunkenness or for uh, for um, uh, rowdiness or hooliganism, uh, they would fall into those quotas also. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, these were the origins of, of the initial quotas. Mm-hmm. And then once the people were um, – who actually did the arresting? And once they were arrested, what, what happened to them? Well, uh, there, I, I think there used to be confusion about that, but I think it is becoming clearer. Um, and uh, it, it sort of depended on where it was. Supposedly, according to uh, the, the, the formal instructions – uh, the political police were supposed to be the ones who did the arresting and the civil police uh, in urban areas as well. Uh, uh, and they were supposed to be brought in. They were supposed to be uh, arrested under a charge. They were supposed to be interrogated. They were uh, they were uh, supposedly to be brought before the, 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 the troiki, the, the, the police, the, the arrest boards. And these now were special boards, not just the police boards, but the special um, purge boards, uh, they could actually be brought before either one, either before the, uh, the, the, the mass operational boards or before the, the police boards that had been operating all through the 1930s, depending on how dangerous they were considered. So they would be brought before those boards. They, would be, uh, they, could, um, say, they could say what they wanted to say, and then usually they would be sentenced. But in fact, um, it, and in certain areas where the quotas weren't high or the police were lazy, um, they did things, you know, they could do things pretty much the way they were supposed to do it. 
But in a lot of areas, there was so much pressure that, it, that, that this system became extremely chaotic uh, to the point where they were under so much pressure to bring in numbers of people and increasing numbers of people that they started simply hauling people in from marketplaces uh, and, uh, and uh, they didn't have enough trucks. And so they started borrowing uh, trucks from uh, state institutions. Uh, they didn't have enough clerical staff to write up the, uh, the arrest uh, procedures and, uh, and warrants. And so they brought in school teachers and uh, civil servants. Uh, and, then, uh, and then the numbers of people built up uh, to be shot so much that they started bringing in the civil police and even uh, party members uh, and sometimes Komsomol members to uh, to operate to work in the firing squads. Uh, and so, um, as I say, it became a very chaotic process. And and in some places, um, what they would do, I describe this in the book that they they would actually separate the different elements of the arrest and 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 the whole procedure it kind of industrialize it in a sense that they would bring in a number of people simply put them in cells and then in an, in other places either in the same building or somewhere else um officers would have lists of names they would say bring in civil police or other clerical staff and they would simply write up all these uh accusations uh, and they were actually told, you know, don't write the same thing all the time, vary it a little bit, um, you know, use different kinds of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, uh, crimes or conspiracies. And they said any and, and a lot of people were told um, uh, 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 put a bunch of people together under a, under a single conspiracy. That way you save time and paper. Uh, and so these people would, would do the writing process. And then the troiki would simply um, would simply pass sentence on uh, on on people and sign the the sentences even sometimes after groups of people were sent out and shot. So you know it's like a it's like a, a division of labor in uh, in which uh, one except that one part of the the, the the different processes were separate from each other. Mm -hmm. So people who were, for example, brought into the cells may or may not have actually stood in front of a troika. They may or may not have uh, uh, even known what they were being charged with. They might have been uh, sent somewhere or they might have simply been taken out and, uh, and shot uh, without knowing why they were being shot or having been interrogated or anything. And interrogation is another thing that I think started to go by the wayside because they simply didn't have enough time mm -hmm. to interrogate all these prisoners. Uh, and so often what they would do if they if they adhered to the procedure at all, what they would do is they would have prisoners that were actually, um, you know, working uh, in exchange for staying alive or whatever, uh, extra rations who were working with the police who would be in the cells and they would say to a bunch of people, look, uh, they just need, uh, if, if you just uh, confess to a conspiracy, uh, they'll let us all go. And so he'd get like a number of people who may not have even knew, known each other or confess to a conspiracy, and then that would be written down. Uh, but as I say, a lot of the time, in, or in certain places where they were under a great deal of pressure, they didn't even bother to do that. They simply separated the different processes. Mm -hmm. Now, um, uh, this, this I, I describe in my book. Now, there is, there are, uh, at least one of, there is one other historian who takes issue with this. It, it thinks that the, the process was far more orderly. 
but I'm not sure it was. It, I think it may have been in, in certain places, but there were certain areas that were under such intense pressure uh, to, uh, to fulfill quotas uh, so fast that uh, that they simply had no other choice but to uh, but to to in, uh, engage in this extremely chaotic kind of uh, situation. Mm -hmm. How were the uh, executions carried out, and who carried them out, and what happened to the bodies? Uh, usually, actually, there are instructions about that also. Uh, at first, uh, many of them were carried out in the courtyard of the prisons or wherever the warehouses or wherever that they were using for prisons because uh, the, you know, the local prison would get too full. Uh, and then uh, Yezhov uh, started sending around memos saying they shouldn't do that because uh, often uh, these were within uh, or could be the, the shots could be heard within the city limits and it, and it might uh, disturb people. <laughs> Uh, and also it would spread panic among the prisoners. And so what they started doing, they were told uh, often to uh, find remote areas, either in the forest or in some cases, uh, they would use uh, actual NKVD um, land, uh, either the NKVD you know, had its own system of farms and things like that. So often uh, there would be like a, a barracks or a or a camp or some kind of farm or some kind of ground that the NKVD could control uh, somewhere out of, the, out of a town, out of a city. Uh, and they would take the people there usually at night. Uh, and uh, um, I don't know if they actually dug the trenches or didn't dig the trenches, uh, but they would uh, shoot them there and then uh, fill in the trenches. Uh, there's one... There, is, there are a number of these sites who have been, that have been excavated. One, a very famous site uh, in a, a, a regional area slightly south of Moscow uh, called Butova. And uh, uh, there, there is actual, there's a, there's a book that shows the archaeological excavation. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's sort of uh, grimly interesting is that the Soviets were much more messy about uh, mass executions than the Germans were. Um, they did not take, generally take the people's clothing. Uh, they didn't uh, uh, e extract uh, gold. They, they weren't systematic about looting the bodies. They just simply shot them. And so in the excavation site, uh, one sees uh, uh, pieces of bodies, uh, uh, bits of uh, 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 parts of clothing, pots and pans and other things. Uh, they would also use things like, you know, taking them, taking groups of prisoners to a bathhouse, uh, supposedly for a bath before deportation, and then surrounding the bathhouse and, and would fire into it. Who did the ex executing? Uh, well, certainly the high political police, uh, but uh, I'm convinced also that uh, the civilian police were uh, mobilized into this because they simply didn't have enough uh, political police to uh, to to carry out all the executions. Um, how widespread? As I say, I, the, the civil police were certainly deeply involved in the repressions. How much they were actually used for uh, in the execution squads, I can't really say. Uh, they weren't supposed to be used, and there's some evidence that some police commanders tried to uh, uh, get their police officers out of these execution squads. But I think that if you were requisitioned to do it, they did it.
uh -huh. what they thought about it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, there are these stories of, uh, for example, the, the head of the Leningrad uh, uh, political police, who was a high official. He didn't have to mess his hands up with uh, with uh, with executions, but he did. Uh, he personally executed thousands of people, uh, and they would shoot them. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, they they would shoot them with uh, 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 pistols, rifles, whatever uh, whatever they had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask one final question uh, about the book itself, and that is the, the purges ended in 1938, the Great Purges. Did mm -hmm. the repression continue? And if it did continue, was it of a different sort or the same sort? And, and I'm primarily interested in the period after the war ended to 1953. Well, um, the mass social repressions did not continue. Uh, ethnic repressions did. And in fact, uh, they, uh, they ethnic repressions began in the mid 1930s, escalated through the uh, the nationality campaigns of the late 30s, and then and then in the war became even more extensive. After the war, within the 1939 borders, um, no, the regime no longer engaged in uh, the kind of mass social repression that they did in the 1930s. Um, mainly, I think because they believed that uh, there was no longer uh, a political danger uh, from uh, social, uh, socially alien groups. So within the 1939 borders, th there continued to be mass repression, but it was not mass repression by political police. It was by ordinary police and courts, mainly for uh, issues of a statutory um, uh, uh, a violation and especially labor law violation and millions of people were repressed in that sense. Mm -hmm. But the kind of uh, mass operations of the great purges, social operations did not continue after the war except in the new territories. Mm -hmm. In the new territories, in the newly occupied territories, uh, they engaged in both political and mass social repression in much the same way using much the same almost exactly the same kind of wording as in the orders of the, the mass purges from the late 1930s. Uh, so they were very conscious about that. Within the Baltic states, within the, the western, new western border areas of, of Ukraine as, as well, but not inside the 1939 borders. Well, uh, as I say, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate you talking uh, to us. About well, thank you, Marshall. It's a, it's a really terrific book, and I, I hope that people... Go out and buy it. I was going to say it, it would make a terrific holiday gift, but um, well, maybe you should wait till after the holiday. <laughs> actually, I, I please encourage people to, to each buy at least ten copies yes, of their I, relatives. Yes, I will. So yes, go out and buy ten copies for each of your relatives. Ten copies for each of your relatives, and <laughs> and you know, we should. So, uh, Dave, we have a traditional final question on new books in history, and it is: uh, What are you working on now? What is your next project? Uh, well, as Monty Python used to say, uh, now for something completely different. Uh, actually, what I've become interested in, uh, in, in brief, in short, are um, uh, Russian and Soviet um, scientific and other kinds of explorers in Central Asia from about the 1870s through the late 1920s. Uh, this takes me into issues of Orientalism. Uh, border areas, the construction of uh, identities and ethnic groups, but it also takes me back to some of my graduate work in the sociology of knowledge because 
a lot of this exploration for either colonial or revolutionary or political reasons had to do with the construction of ethnographic and geographic uh, knowledge and uh, natural scientific knowledge about these areas. And there was a great uh, international competition. And so I'm looking at the Russians, the Americans, uh, the Germans, the French, and the British, and how uh, each of these different groups um, uh, constructed their images of Central Asia through exploration. It's a, it's a, I want to tell you, it's a, it's a hell of a lot more fun than, than, yeah. <laughs> than well, studying imagine, mass depression. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but anyway, so it's a small project. It's, <laughs> um, well, I'm afraid this one's getting out of hand too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's quite a bit. Well, anyway, we've been talking to uh, Dave Shearer today about his terrific book, Policing Stalin Socialism, Repression and Social Order in the Soviet Union, 1924 to 1953. I would like you to encourage you to go buy this book because it, re it really is uh, eye-opening. It's terrifically written. It's, it's wonderfully researched. And, and uh, you know, I really think that there's a lot of, um, I don't like the word revisionist, but there are a lot of things that even if you know a lot about, you think you know a lot about the Soviet Union in the 1920s, 1930s, um, you should read this book because uh, probably many of the things that you think you know you don't know. At least that was the case with me. So anyway, thanks, Dave, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Dave Shearer about his new book, Policing Stalin's Socialism, Repression and Social Order in the Soviet Union, 1924 to 1953. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music